What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of The Takeout. However you find the show, podcast platforms, terrestrial radio stations around the country, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, or CBSN. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for hanging out with us. An in-depth conversation this week on race and the reckoning of race in our country. Our special guest is Derek Johnson. He is the president of the NAACP. He is the 19th president of that esteemed organization, been so since October of 2017. Derek, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you. So the eyes of the world, Derek Johnson, are on Minneapolis. And I'd like you to from your perspective, share with my audience what you think is at stake in the trial of Derek Chauvin, charged with manslaughter, second-degree murder, and third-degree murder in the death of George Floyd. You know, when we consider this trial, uh, we must recognize that our criminal justice system is actually on trial. Uh, The right to breathe as a Black man is on trial. Uh, The reality of what's taking place is being seen globally. Uh, What was witnessed last year with individuals Uh, seeing the recordings from 11 different angles was obvious. Uh, George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in broad daylight in the street. What argument can defend what we all witness, not only across the country, but around the globe, uh, will be interesting. Our criminal justice system is on trial. The uh, defense attorneys for Derek Chauvin said he did what he was trained to do. Is that part of the point? That's part of the problem. If, in fact, he was trained to put a knee on someone's neck who was complying with orders, who didn't pose any threat, who was not at, uh, he, George Floyd didn't present any risk. Uh, but more importantly, he was accused, not convicted, accused of a counterfeit $20 bill. Uh, that's a nonviolent, non threatening uh, occurrence. If, in fact, it was true, uh, it should not have been his sentence to death. So the defense attorneys asked and the judge has allowed uh, evidence to be submitted at trial about a previous encounter with George Floyd the year before, in which it is alleged he ingested drugs and was non-compliant. They want to put together what they would argue to the jury is a pattern of behavior that was troublesome, bothersome, and non-compliant. Relevant or irrelevant? Extremely irrelevant. What we've seen on the video that George Floyd did not resist his arrest. He did not present a present threat. In fact, he had, he was detained. He was handcuffed. He was laying on his stomach. The, uh, that uh, He didn't pose a violent threat to those officers. 
Uh, in fact, one of the most troubling things I heard in the proceedings is the fact that those officers feared for their lives because of the neighborhood they were in. And, and they were afraid that the, the individuals watching was going to pose a threat. Again, that's a fallacy. And if, in fact, they were patrolling in that neighborhood with that state of mind, they should not be on uh, in law enforcement. They should not have been in that community. Uh, and uh, I think that goes towards their intent to cause harm to George Floyd and anyone else in that community. And does that not speak to the larger atmosphere about all of this, which is to say the sense, well, he's a tall, muscular black man. Therefore, by definition, he must pose a threat. If he is not instantly compliant, he must be subdued in the harshest manner. And because it's a bad neighborhood, quote unquote, rough methods or intense methods must be employed to send a signal to that neighborhood. Isn't that largely what the backdrop of all of this is, not only in Minneapolis, but many other cities in our country? That's called racism. That's what that is called. That's called racism. When you automatically assume the most negative characteristics uh, about an individual, a community, based on their physical features, that's called racism. That's called a caste system. That's called that's cause for illegal activity that was committed by the law enforcement officers, particularly Derek Chauvin. Mm -hmm. And there have been some who say, do we even need a trial? The video is so clear, so compelling, so obvious. Do we actually need this process? What do you think about that? Uh, we, we afford all citizens due process. We should always have a system to adjudicate injuries and harms and to ensure that we have a justice systems that's both transparent and accountable. Uh, that's something that George Floyd was not afforded. That's why this whole scenario is so appalling that those law enforcement officers, uh, upon getting arriving on the scene based on an accusation, decided that they were going to try, convict, and sentence to death all in the instance moment. That's not a, a stabilized democracy. And because we want to maintain a stabilized democracy, we should always provide people due process to make sure once the ultimate decision is made, it is the right decision. But what we witnessed was the wrong decision based on a level of bias and racism that should not exist, especially with individuals carrying a badge and a gun who were sworn to protect and serve. Derek, I'd like to ask you to go back in your mind, if you can, to the weekend of the killing of George Floyd. It was not the first time an African-American had been killed in this country on camera by police. Far from it. And yet this particular episode has created in this country not only a new conversation, but a global movement about issues of race and justice. Did that in the moment occurred to you as a possibility? Have you been surprised by the enormity of what has flowed from the George Floyd death? Never predict how or what was sparked a, mo a movement uh, uh, that we witnessed this past summer. But we can look back and understand the climate that existed that created the conditions. Uh, after having uh, three and a half years of Trump in the White House, uh, the level of tribalism and division that we seen, the, the boldness by which white supremacist groups would uh, put themselves out in the public had shifted. Uh, the acceptance of white supremacist dogma in the White House with Stephen Miller was allowed. Uh, the bully pulpit uh, of the presidential podium was used to really stir up racism, anti-Semitic and xenophobia in ways we had not seen in decades. 
so all of those conditions came together with uh, a pandemic and many people began to quarantine and restless and, and worry. And so those were ingredients for an, an eruption when we seen the George Floyd video in the backdrop of Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. Uh, all of those things kind of were part of ingredients. The beautiful thing about last summer, uh, the response looked like America. There was young people and old people and white and black and, and, and caring people who decided to take to the streets because we cannot have a civilized society if you have this type of mob violence. And I won't say mob violence, if you have this type of, 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 of individuals who are sworn to protect Com committing murder in broad daylight. And those protests, it looked like America. And that's what I'm most proud about. It looked like America. Before we go to break, Derek Johnson, president of NAACP, you know there are some parts of the political conversation in America who view the summer not as a diverse America move movement, but as an act of criminality, of fires in cities, of riots, of destruction, of violence, and that's what they associate with it, not the protest movement for racial justice. Your thoughts? Well, the, the, those who took to the streets, they, they engaged in peaceful protests. Uh, what we also seen was uh, incidents of, of individuals trying to incite so they can have a counter-narrative. You know, I have never, ever met, seen, or been in the presence of anybody who claimed to be Antifa. I don't even know what that is, but it's almost like this fictitious group that's been created to say, here's the problem, when, when in fact, do have you ever talked to someone who claimed to be Antifa? I have never met, seen, been in the presence of, but I've, I've seen a, a, a communication strategy to divert the attention from a value proposition that Black Lives Matter. It's not a statement of, of around organization or hashtag. It's a value proposition that goes directly to our constitution. All men and women are created equal and endowed with certain level rights. And what we see this summer was peaceful protests of people saying this value proposition applies to all of us. Derek Johnson is the president of the NAACP. Derek, we got to take a quick break. We'll come right back for segment two of The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Stay with us. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, is our special guest. You talked about Black Lives Matter as a values proposition. What does that mean? What, what should my listeners and viewers understand what you mean when you say that? The whole concept evolved as a result of uh, what took place in Ferguson, that if law enforcement officers or, or regular citizens can see an individual who happened to be black and African-American and treat them less than a full citizen, treat them less than a human, uh, that shouldn't be acceptable, that our lives matter, that we should be considered like any other citizen in this country. That is a value proposition. Do we value human life 
regardless of one's standing status, race, or ethnic identity? Do we value human life? You've also heard Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, Blue Lives Matter, back the badge, and this idea that if you are standing on behalf of that value proposition, Black Lives Matter, you are probably standing against police. True, untrue? Absolutely uh, false, and it's erroneous. Uh, to just propose a position that because one lives matters uh, is in opposition to law enforcement, that's foolish. It, what we're saying is equal protection under law should be afforded to all citizens, that we, are all, we all should be treated equally, and that individuals shouldn't be cast away, treated less than human, or murdered in the streets. That's how the, that value, that conversation started. It's no different than what King talked about on the March of Washington, what so many have fought for, what, what Chavez uh, uh, organized around workers, I mean, we have to, in this country, do away with a caste system that has really crippled us. We must, in this country, do away with tribalism, which has crippled us. We must, in this country, live up to our full potential by being more inclusive, not less. And I don't want you to have to play the punchline game with me, but also it's a part of this debate, defund the police. There are those uh, who listened to that in the fall campaign, not though President Trump didn't win, but many other Republicans did. I watched the campaigns play out, congressional, local races, and that was a potent issue to rally around if you were a Republican voter. What does the NAACP believe about defunding the police? Well, the real question is, how do you define that? I mean, African-Americans, we want our communities safe and secure and protected. Uh, we don't want lawlessness and chaos. Uh, so I don't go to the buzzwords because oftentimes those buzzwords get flipped on their head. What's underlining the call? What's underlining that is that we've seen over the last several decades a defunding of social services, social workers, mental health programs, activities for young people to be engaged with uh, in targeted communities and an escalation of budgets for law enforcement to create a military presence. Uh, that's not how you nurture uh, a healthy community. And so our position in ACP, we say community should be healthy. And that health should be when there is a mental health breakdown of an individual and there's a call that in, uh, whether it's law enforcement officers or mental health professionals, they can come and de-escalate and contain if there is a community or a household that's living in trauma, however that trauma exhibits itself, there should be social workers and wraparound services to support that th those, those, those households or those communities. If you have young people with all of that energy and it's not directed towards activities because of the programs are no longer there, whether it's summer league, baseball, basketball, or after school programs, we must put in place a system so those young people can really burn off those, that energy in ways in which they can be more productive. Uh, you cannot do that by ha having competing budgets. You have to do that by having aligned budgets where those services are properly funded with the tax dollars the citizens are putting in, into the coffers. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Ferguson a while ago. Uh, even the Obama Justice Department looked at that and said there were a lot of problematic aspects of what Michael Brown did, and there was a justification for what the officer did. But I want to talk to you about something else that was going on in Ferguson that I think is relevant to what you just mentioned, which was in Ferguson, it was the police department that enforced the fines for tickets and things. 
And when people couldn't pay them, their fines went up, their penalties went up, and they were trapped in this sort of place of never getting out from under the thumb of the local government, enforced by the police. And that was a larger construct, quite not separate from, but related to what happened to Michael Brown. That was, it seems to me, a fuse. And that still goes on in a lot of urban areas in our country. The police become the enforcement mechanism for cities that give tickets, run up penalties, run up fines, and people cannot get out from underneath that. But that was the complete story of what happened in Ferguson. It was, so we call it a predatory policing, where the municipality or the county governance depend on fines and fees to run their uh, the government, uh, which is predatory on the citizens of that city. So they set up speed traps. They create fine structures where people, uh, it's hard for people to come from under those fee structures. As a result of that, you find individuals have to stay a day or two in jail, losing their jobs. So it becomes a cycle of predatory policing. And what we've seen that actually gave rise to this whole notion of defund really four type of models that create a level of stress in communities. One is a predatory policing that I just spoke of. Two is when uh, police unions have such a grip on, on the municipality that they can never be held accountable because of a qualified immunity and being shielded from uh, their records being publicly displayed if, if they uh, are found guilty of police misconduct. Secondly, where you have law enforcement officers who have no relationship to the communities that they serve, i.e. they drive in 30 minutes, hour from wherever they live to communities that they, they, they're not familiar with, they don't respect, they don't care about. Therefore, there is not the type of community law enforcement agency relationships to foster something differently. And then fourthly, of uh, those areas where they have built up military arms for the police force with surplus military goods, and they provide no other support for those communities to address issues of mental health, trauma, or, or activities. Uh, and we've seen that across the country. Right. So for my audience, if I hear what you're saying correctly, it's like, don't think Minneapolis is the place where only this exists. This exists in cities across the country. All across the country. There's a tinderbox element to all of it. And when this question of police reform comes up, this is what you're talking about. Absolutely. And, you know, in a better word is police reform. It is unfair for law enforcement officers, a lot of whom I have a lot of law enforcement officer friends, to get called to a domestic uh, 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 situation. Those are the most dangerous situations because they're volatile. Very volatile. Very volatile. I was a police reporter for six years. Domestic violence calls are volatile, unpredictable, huge emotions involved, weapons frequently involved, dangerous scenarios. That's right. And what's sad about it, in many of those cases, uh, those law enforcement officers have not been trained to de-escalate the situation. And that's unfair to law enforcement officers. And we want them to go home safe to their families because they are a part of our society. And in some cases, they live in the very same communities. Uh, and that's unfair. Uh, you can't call police officers out to situation where you have someone with mental illness and they have been underdiagnosed, overdiagnosed, or not diagnosed at all. Very volatile. And you have to have the type of training to de-escalate, not escalate those scenarios. Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP. We're going to go to break in about a minute, but to tee up where we're going to go next, I want to give you 30 to 45 seconds to talk about the current state of debate in this country about voting rights. And we'll carry on that conversation on the other side of the break. You know, 
access to voting should be paramount in this nation. It should be a federal right to, to go vote. And we should do all we can to make access as citizen friendly as possible. Every individual who are legitimate voters in this country, citizens of this country, should be entitled to cast a ballot. If Australia can vote at 96% of their citizens and Canada around 92% and Germany around 93%, we should be the leading democracy, at least be in line with that and not celebrate when just over 6% of, of eligible, legitimate citizens are able to vote. What we're watching now is a suppression of the vote based on partisanship and parties shouldn't try to limit access. They should listen to voters and try to win them over based on their policy platforms. As the voice of Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, I'm Major Garrett back with our segment three in just a second, continuing the conversation about the debate over voting rights in the United States. Stay with us. We'll be back in a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, is our special guest. Eric, uh, just for the audience's benefit, what does NAACP stand for, and is it in any way a name that is anachronistic? National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, it is a name that we're going to hold on to. It, it, it means that we are a legacy organization, and as the identity of African Americans has shifted over the decades, that we have to recognize that we represent more than just the African American community. And we have always, we have members across the country in 47 states uh, from many walks of lives. Uh, Even the African-American community, we're not a monolith. We have individuals who are Southern born and rural and urban born uh, in the North, in the Midwest. We have members who are uh, first generation from the Caribbean or the African continent. We have individuals from Native American tribes. We have individuals who are of Irish and Italian ancestry. Uh, we are truly a people, uh, an organization of people from all walks of life and, and uh, demographic backgrounds. And I wonder if there's not a part of the name that actually is more relevant now as we think about people of color, whereas in the 60s and 70s, if I as a white person said, oh, there's a colored man over there, I would have been saying something demonstrably racist. Is that shift of perspective happening? I mean, I think... Association is the most important word uh, about our, in our name, right? Because what we represent is a bottom-up structure where members across the country would equal say on the policy priorities of the association to make sure that democracy works in this nation for everyone, that, uh, that, uh, that access to opportunity should be afforded to everyone, that we care for our elderly, that we prepare our young people, and we protect the rights of those who are dis- disadvantaged, however you define that. That is the true mark of a healthy society. Our, our goal is to have a, a robust democracy that's both healthy for all citizens and protective of individual rights. So uh, in Washington right now, H.R. 1 is a topic of intense conversation. It is a bill passed by the House. It's pending in the Senate. It has prompted a conversation with among Democrats. Should they get rid of the filibuster to pass this voting rights legislation? So two questions. Does the NAACP support H.R. 1 in its totality? And should Senate Democrats abolish the filibuster in order to bring it to the floor and possibly see it passed? We absolutely support H.R. 1. And the real question here, why does the filibuster? 
blockbuster exists? How did it come into existence and how has it been used? And it, it really uh, was perverted during the periods of segregation, especially starting in the 1930s, where Southern me uh, members of the Senate would use the two to slow down the appointments of federal judges who would be more sympathetic towards civil rights goals and, and, and more inclusion. And then it was accelerated after the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled on Brown versus Board of Education, abolishing in legal standards, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision that created separate but equal, and then accelerated uh, from appointment of judges to anything that uh, a member in the minority party didn't like so that they can hold hostage to the nation. Uh, we should not allow a procedural rule to stop policy that's beneficial to all citizens. So if Senate Democrats don't get rid of the filibuster, they are at least indirectly maintaining a racist procedural mechanism. That, is that true? That's absolutely true. It is a scenario where uh, the filibuster in its creation may have been created so that the Senate as a deliberative body can temper down the, the emotional outbursts of passing something fast to a perverted tool by segregationist senators from the South, Senator Russell from Georgia, or Lyndon Johnson before he became president, or, or, or Hiram Eastland, or, or Bilbo out of Mississippi. Uh, and they used that tool to slow down integrating society. We should not allow that tool to continue to be used in that. Are you satisfied with President Biden's position on this question? I am. Uh, you know, it's funny. We had not even 100 days into his administration. And 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 he's we've done more in the 70 so days than we did in three years to begin to unravel the knot that we've seen put in place over the last four years. I, the pace by which he's going, I, I am satisfied with that. While at the same time, I'm urging to speed it up even more. And it's not just the filibuster process. It's also the blue slip. The blue slip mm -hmm. procedure move uh, gave a senator out of South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, almost veto power on what district court judges or U.S. attorney appointees will move forward. And then over uh, Congressman Clyburn, who's from the same state. Uh, that should not exist. Right. Just for the audience benefit, because not everyone understands what a blue slip is. If a senator fills out a blue slip about a pending judicial nominee, that effectively kills it. That's a procedural thing within the body of the Senate. Very quiet. Not too many people know about it, but you're uh, troubled by that as well. Oh, absolutely. It is a now that is a direct segregation era uh, procedure that was put in place by, I believe it was Senator Bilbo from Mississippi. Uh, and the goal was to stop the appointment of district court judges who will be sympathetic to the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education. And it's outlandish because you cannot give a Lindsey Graham veto power over uh, a Congressman Clyburn. Derek Johnson, president of NAACP, I want to change your uh, vantage point just a second, or I want to learn your vantage point, not change it, but I want to change the conversation's direction out of Washington into something dealing with college athletics. Supreme Court's going to have a, a hearing today. We're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, what is the date, Major? Look at your watch. Uh, March 31st, about the future of college athletes and their ability to assert for themselves some control and financial benefit from their name, image, and likeness. That's not the only thing the Supreme Court's 
looking at, but there's federal legislation on there. Do you believe college athletes should be paid? If so, by what mechanism? And do you believe the NCAA's relationship to college athletes is in any way discriminatory or biased? It's both discriminatory, biased, and it's usury. Uh, Here you have young people aggressively pursuing careers uh, uh, around around their, their physical athletic skills, and if they get hurt, they lose a scholarship. If they're no longer eligible, they're pretty much out of school, while the schools themselves are generating billions, tens of billions of dollars to allow the schools to function. And you know, I never understood, if I got recruited for a scholarship to play a sport and somehow uh, because of an injury playing that sport, I can no longer play, I lose my scholarship. I can't even finish school. But the school continues to generate billions of dollars, uh, that's unfair. There's no other uh, area uh, in this country that use people in that manner. And what is- So what's the, best, what's the best remedy? Is it to unionize college athletes? Is it to allow them to negotiate their own sort of branding rights themselves with agents and other third parties? There are a lot of college coaches who believe that vastly complicates the whole way you recruit, the way athletes make it into college and get a chance to go to the pros, what's the best mechanism? You know, it's funny. They, of course they would say it complicates because, because they're making tons of money off of the system as it exists. Uh, and I don't have the uh, answer to the best way. And I, and I know there are experts who've studied this question in much more detail than I have studied it, but I do know what current, currently exists is usury, and it should not exist. Think about, you named the major school, uh, College sports make up a substantial portion of their whole budget. I mean, in some cases, it's over 50% of the total school's budget. And the players... It, it drives it drives uh, alumni development donations. It drives visibility. It drives incru- re- recruitment, recruitment for athletes, enrollment numbers, everything. Everything. You know, you know I don't know if you recall, when ESPN first came into existence, uh, ESPN grew its identity based on the, um, the ACC of a bunch of schools no one ever even heard of, Seton Hall and, and, all, and Villanova. And all of a sudden, these uh, teams playing on EXPN became the, the darlings of the 80s when everybody wanted to go, oh, I'm going to Syracuse, I'm going to Villanova, I'm going to St. John's. I was like, where is it? Have you ever really heard of it before? And those schools grew tremendously as a result of these sports teams. But the, the players who didn't make it into the NBA, who didn't make it into uh, uh, the NFL or Major League Baseball, uh, they were left behind. That is the voice of Derek Johnson. He's the president of the NAACP. Back for segment four of the takeout in just one second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, is our special guest. Uh, Derek, uh, what has been your 
interpretation and what is the NAACP doing or saying about what has happened and has been happening and continues to happen in this country on almost a daily basis. Acts of racism, violent in some cases against Asian Americans in our nation. It is unfortunate that that what we've seen the growth of in the past administration is this xenophobic and racist attitude that people are now willing to display in the public. Um, and Asian you, you blame you blame the Trump administration for this atmosphere. So if you if you look at the rise in hate crime over the last four years, you begin to see a spike, right? It began to spike because uh, there was a level of tolerance that was coming out of, of the White House that called for certain activities indirectly. And you also seen a level of boldness starting in Charlottesville with individuals with tiki torches in a Nazi stance saying, uh, you know, anti-Semitic things and racist things towards the Jewish community, black community. If you look at this time last year and when uh, we began to recognize the global pandemic was going to have a huge impact on our Trump did from his own language, he refused to call the virus as it began to spread by the proper name and start isolating the torch uh, the ethnic identity of the Asian American community. That's racism. And what we and as a result, we've seen a tremendous increase in, in uh, anti-hate and uh, activities towards Asian community. In fact, violence towards Asian community. So absolutely, I lay it at the feet of this of the past administration. And absolutely, I completely recognize that what we are confronted with right now is, is unwinding that clock. I love history. And if you look at the time after World War I in Germany and how someone like uh, Hitler came into power, it was because of the use of language and communication devices that stirred up this anti-Semitic, anti-anything that, that was an Aryan in nature activity to the point where individuals start being harmed. And it, no one put it in check. If we don't put in check what we are witnessing now against the Latino community, against the Asian community, against the Jewish community, against the Black community, we will find ourselves in a scenario that none of us want to see. You mentioned you love history. I want to ask you briefly about uh, President Biden's infrastructure plans, $2 trillion at least. One of the aspects of infrastructure in America, as I don't know if it's a term, infrastructure racism, but certainly Black communities have seen infrastructure decisions that have been very harmful to them at a core identity level. What do you want this infrastructure to debate to be about that issue and how it inter intersects with the American uh, urban communities, African-American communities, peoples of color? So let's be clear, the number one driver of our economy in the United States is our infrastructure. It allows the trucks to move across bridges. It allows the ships to get into port. It allows the companies to identify locals to employ people. And in this infrastructure bill, we must make sure we build out in areas that have been neglected and areas that have been poisoned and in areas where economic opportunities have not allowed for upward mobile economic uh, ability. So you look at Flint. We should, kids shouldn't be drinking water that's poison, but Flint is in the only city. There are several cities that the water systems are so old, they knew, they knew new piping, but that creates jobs. 
if you create jobs, people have to be trained. And if we get trained, then that opens up. And that should be uh, equal distribution of those opportunities. That opportunities become a multiplier effect. More people with jobs, more people with money, more money in the economy, more activity for businesses, more activity for businesses mean more jobs being created. And then you improve the quality of life, fewer children being poisoned by you know, or water, infrastructures. Are, I mean, it's just a multiplier effect. I wonder if two trillion is enough. Should it be three trillion? Should it be four trillion? Because if you look at the stock market crash uh, in, in uh, 1929, and you look at how do we get out of that? We got out of that because we had a new deal. And in that new deal, people went to work. And in that new deal, workers had rights that were protected. And in that new deal, there were policies created so we can see home ownership for the first time. In that new deal, we created a social safety net that we call social security. In that new deal, people were valued. Now, African-Americans, we were left out of much of that new deal because as we mm -hmm. were able to, for the first time, purchase home across society through FHA home mortgage uh, loans, the decision was left to local bankers and developers who use subjective measures to exclude who would qualify and not qualify, not credit scores, which is also biased. And so we were locked out. Redlining. Out, right. Yeah. And then once we were locked out of being able to qualify for that, you had those same bankers and developers who would draw a line around certain communities and say, this is where the black people should live. They, they won't be able to qualify home for a home mortgage, but if they are able to buy a home, the value of their home would not appreciate in value and time consistent with the neighbor, neighborhood. In that new deal, we was left out because Southern legislators through the filibuster mechanism said that we will only support this bill if agricultural and domestic workers were excluded. 80% of African-Americans at that time were domestic or agricultural workers. Therefore, that social safety net we call social security, we were left out for decades. So in this new new deal, through the infrastructure bill, it should be something that is both impactful to the communities that we currently live in, impactful for the jobs that are created, impactful for the wealth that can be generated by families, irregardless of their ethnic or racial background. Use the filibuster uh, reference one more time, and I want to, before we conclude for our radio audience, quickly, when Tim Scott, African-American Republican from South Carolina, brought a police reform bill to the Senate floor last summer, it was filibustered by Senate Democrats. Kamala Harris supported that filibuster. There are those in my audience who would say, that's using the filibuster to shut down an African-American Republican who's trying to do something on police reform. That's got to be wrong, too. Well, I like Senator Scott. He and I, we, we communicate. But the bill he was pushing was a watered-down version of what was needed. Here are some of the key criteria. Well, why place. not allow it to be debated? Well, here's the problem. What they were seeking to debate was not to allow a national database of police misconduct. Why should any community not know if a police officer was at an agency and was terminated and they are now serving in a new agency? Shouldn't that be on record, particularly if that person committed uh, child molestation. Right now, we don't even know who these officers are. Are they mentally healthy? Is, have there been an evaluation that caused them to leave from one agency to the next? And that could be from a white community to a white community. We, we should not allow for chokeholds and knees or necks. That was in that bill that came out the house, but what, what Tim Scott was pushing did not include that. Why should a bill advance that didn't have qualified immunity? Now, yes, it should have been debated. Yes, the filibuster should not have been used in that manner. But at the same time, you can go issue by issue and say, well, it was used here. Why should it have been used there? 
or you can go to the substance of why it was used and then step back and look at the filibuster. Be like, wait a minute, are they using this tool to prevent equal access and opportunity or are they using this tool to stop equal access and opportunity? Wait a minute, why do we even have this tool? Mm-hmm. That is the voice of Derek Johnson, the president of the NAACP. For our radio audience, we must say farewell. But for those on CBSN and on the podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Derek Johnson is our special guest. He is president of the NAACP. Derek, tell my audience a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Grew up Detroit, Michigan. And how did you become, my notes say here, the 19th president of the NAACP? That cannot be an easy thing to achieve in life. Well, you know, it's, uh, I agree, right? I have been involved in the NAACP ever since undergrad, and I was always fascinated not only with the work of the NAACP, but the individuals. And as I said earlier, I, I enjoy history. But when I walked into my first state meeting in Mississippi, and I sat there, and I, I didn't know anyone in the room, and I was listening to the individuals talking, and then I began to recognize the name, and I was floored to realize that the people talking were some of the people I was reading about in a history book. I was just shocked. So I got involved. I got immersed in the organization, how it functioned. I went to my first national convention, uh, and it was the convention where Ross Perot said, you people. And I and I, I was there. Yeah. I, I, I was there. I was covering the pro campaign at the time. Yeah, you people. You yeah. People. I believe it was in Indianapolis, if I'm not mistaken. It might and have been Nashville. Nashville, Nashville. And what was fascinating, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, what did he just say? And people are like, oh, boo, boo. And I'm like, what did he say? And I was like, wow. But backstage was Al Gore and Bill Clinton. And, you know, you named the, the individual for, uh, for the president. And I was just in awe. The fact that the African-American community can hold an organization like the NAACP for this number of years, and it has such prominence and, re- and relevancy that it will command individuals who are running for the, uh, the office of the presidency. President Bush was at that convention. Nelson Mandela was at that convention. I mean, it was a huge, huge event. I've been hooked ever since. Right. So the organization got started between conversations among prominent New Yorkers in the early 20th century, 1909, I believe is when it was founded. It has spent most of its time headquartered in Baltimore. It is now moving to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Why and what is the significance of that move? Two things. We spend majority of our time in New York City. And in the mid-80s, we moved to Baltimore. Uh, uh, we are the leading civil rights advocacy organization, not only the nation, but the world. Advocacy for public policy, we, we must be in the nation's capital because that's where public policy is created. And I love the city of Baltimore. It's a great city. But if we are the leading uh, African-American advocacy voice in the world, we need to be in the center of power where public policy for this nation is created, and that is Washington, D.C. And the U Street Corridor also has its own roots in that experience in the nation's capital as well. It is so fascinating, and I really applaud the mayor of Washington, D.C. with her vision, her foresight. Uh, For African-Americans, that corridor of U Street and 14 was like Main and Main Street for 
African-Americans. So many historical monuments there. Uh, uh, Frank Reed site, Frank Reed was a strong NACPer who did a lot. We had a strong presence in that area for our DC branch. And so it is, it is perfect place for us to be. And I truly appreciate and commend uh, Mayor Bowser for her vision to allow us to partner in a, in, a, in a development of our headquarters being moved to the nation's capital. Real quick, before we get to the fun and games portion, what would you tell those in our audience about the acceptance of COVID-19 vaccines within the African-American community? Oh, we're seeing people get uh, in their shops in droves. I don't think it's as much hesitancy as access. And now that there's more access, you're seeing more people uh, get the shots. And I commend many in the African-American community for overcoming whatever past fears they had uh, to recognize that we must keep ourselves safe. We must keep our families safe. We must keep our community safe. You have no hesitancy whatsoever. I had hesitancy, but, uh, you know, have a neighbor who's a, who's a medical doctor and he walked me through why this is so important, why it was important for me to do it because what that was uh, symbolized. And so after taking it in, doing some research, I recognize uh, that this isn't the Tuskegee experiment. This isn't one of those many areas that let us down. But more importantly, we have some people who developed the vaccine, who took the type of care and, 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 and understood because some of them came from our community uh, 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 to make sure that, that we got it right. I live in a home with a, a mother that's older. I need to keep her safe. I need to be safe. I live in a community that I love. I need to keep the, all my loved ones and my community safe. Very good. Uh, we have three questions we ask every single guest, Derek. Derek Johnson, president of NAACP. So here they are. Take them in whatever you order you prefer. Most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Music is gospel. I work out to gospel music. I love the emotion, the the hope that comes out of gospel music. Uh, and unfortunately, people around me, when I'm listening to it, they have to hear me sing, and it's agonizing for them, but it's beautiful for me. In terms of book, it's hard for me to say one book, Local People by John Dibler, Redemption by Nicholas Lehman, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, Asada Shakur. Uh, I, I think all cast is the most recent book. I'm like fascinated by it. So there's no one book. I just love the journey of our history and the opportunity of our future when you read certain books. Oh, and I, favorite I, movie. And, and, I, and I love Argon and, and Harry Potter because I did that with kids. Favorite movie, uh, you know, movie play is is a, a soldier story. I love that ensemble movie. And I and I love the movie because I seen the play when it was on travel in Detroit one year. And then I seen the movie, I was like, wow, this is beautiful. So yeah, I can name a ton of other movies. I don't doubt it. Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP. It's been our distinct pleasure to spend an hour with you. Thank you, sir, for your time. We'll please keep in touch. Take care. Look forward to the next time. Thank you. See you next week, ladies and gentlemen. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio.
If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.